Thank you for praying with us this morning of the four songs that we've sang today. Three of them are prayers, the last of which should sound somewhat familiar to you because it is robbed directly from the text that we are about to read. We will conclude today our month-long study through the Bread of Life discourse by looking at John chapter 6, verses 60 to 71. And as we read, let's see if you recognize maybe some of the words from the song that we just sang. John chapter 6, verses 60 to 71. If you're a guest with us today and you'd like to follow along in the Bible that's provided in the seat in front of you, you'll find that on page 892. John 6, beginning at verse 60. Let me read for us. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So, Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. We missed you guys last week as we were uh, traveling. We made our way up to uh, central Georgia to uh, officiate uh, a wedding for one of our church members, uh, Savannah Holmes, and uh, it was a pleasure to be there. And I was reminded afresh, you know, on that trip, how much I appreciate Google Maps. They did not pay me at all for this, by the way, but I am prejudiced. I don't like Apple Maps. I think they stink. Google Maps is the way to go, and I was already confirmed of that. But I was further confirmed on this particular trip when I noticed an update, and it was the smallest update. But it's one now that I cannot unsee. It used to be that when you would look at Google Maps, if it wanted you to veer off to the left, that the the actual visible map would have a gradual line that would show you that you were going to be turning off. Well, in the update, 
they made the line less gradual so that you would know that you're actually changing lanes. Instead of it being a smooth line, the line juts out to one direction and then goes up so that you know you're supposed to actually move. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the misfortune of driving somewhere like Miami or Tampa, but those places are notoriously difficult because it seems like you're on the right road. The map even says that you're on the right road, and it'll tell you to veer off, and there's multiple places where you can veer off, and you don't know exactly where to go. Thank you. (laughs) Appearances are deceiving. It seems like you're headed in the right direction. It seems like you're headed exactly to where you need to go, but ultimately the road that you choose may or may not take you to where you need to be. In similar ways, I think what we find here is a group of disciples, a group of Christ followers, at least by all accounts and appearances, who seem to be in the correct lane. They are all moving in a very good direction. From everything that we could tell from the outside, they're headed the right way. I mean, if you think about what's going on in this particular text, you've got hordes of people who are obsessed with Jesus. I mean, so much so that they've given up their vocations for a couple days just to listen to him teach. In fact, we read earlier, well, way earlier, several weeks ago, in the beginning of John 6, that when Jesus actually fed the 20,000 plus that he left them, like, secretly, and went somewhere else. And those people, like, woke up the next morning in a panic, and they hunted him down because they wanted to hear more of his teaching, and they wanted to see more of what he was going to do. They find him. They find him in a synagogue at Capernaum, and they sit there, and they, they listen to his teaching, and they are immensely interested in him. In fact, It says earlier in John 6 that they wanted to make him their king. By all accounts, it just seems that they're in the right lane. They're headed the right direction. They're they're going to that destination which is eternal life. And yet Jesus does something strange throughout the narrative. He like warns them that they're actually not on the right road. I can imagine it almost with like the gentle GPS voice. (laughs) He's saying, switch lanes. You got to switch lanes. Even though you're interested in me, this will not take you where you ultimately want to go. Switch lanes. What is the lane that needed to, to be switched? This text makes it clear. There is in this particular passage, a divergence of the disciples of Jesus, a divergence. And here's what's fascinating, friends. Throughout the text, they're called, listen to this, disciples of Jesus. Three different times in this text, it says, his disciples, his disciples, his disciples. But of that group called his disciples, there's two subgroups. One group defects and the other remains devoted. Did you hear that while we were reading through it? So the question then comes for us, what's the difference between the two? How do we know we're in the right lane? 
If it's not something as simple as identification with Jesus, what's the difference between eternal life and eternal death? That's how this text works. It contrasts the two kinds of discipleship of Jesus. If you're a note taker, there's the defective disciples in verses 60 to 66, and then the devoted, largely pictured in verses 67 to 71, though not exclusively. And when we grasp this, we'll find out whether or not we ourselves are in the right lane and those that we love. It's really practical. It's a great way to end the discourse. So we reread earlier for you the entire discourse on Jesus being the bread of life. And you've noticed that um, Jesus is, has been interacting with these people in such a way that, that he is, uh, is really challenging them on some things. Uh, the first thing that he challenges them on is that they're not just going to get something temporal from him, but they need something eternal. They want like physical food in the moment, like a cosmic vending machine kind of thing. And he's like, no, that's not what I'm offering. I'm offering something eternal. So that was hard enough to hear for them. But what made it like, uh, like really hard for them to hear is that Jesus said, hey, I'm the bread of life and you need to believe that I've come down from heaven. They didn't mind a human prophet kind of guy. They didn't mind somebody like a Moses or like a David who was like empowered by God or blessed with gifts from God, but to say that he's from heaven, they could not handle. So that they, they murmur about that, the text says, and you would think that Jesus knowing that he's offending them is like going to back off a little bit and try to like, you know, massage this thing out. And instead, he turns up the intensity even further to offend them more. He says, not only am I from heaven, but I'm from heaven and I'm going to sacrifice my life for you, my flesh. And then that's when we have that, you must eat my flesh, you must drink my blood, that gory graphic description of them actually trusting in his vicarious death on their behalf for their eternal salvation. And this is just hard for them to hear. It says that they dispute this, that they start to argue even harder against this. And we've reached the conclusion of the dialogue, and I, you, you need to note that here that there comes a fork in the road. Verse 60 says it this way, when many of his disciples heard it, heard what? Heard all the stuff I just told you, that he's offering something eternal, not just temporal, when they heard that he was actually from heaven and not just another prophet, and when they heard that he was going to die for them and not just rule and reign over them or for them, when they heard that, many of his disciples said, uh, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? I love that it says his disciples, because normally when we see the word disciples, we think, oh yeah, I know those guys. These are the people that are following Jesus into eternal life. That's what a disciple is. Or, I mean, maybe you've even heard it as a sermon, or you're a disciple of Jesus. But you need to understand, friends, that the Greek word for disciple just means a follower, an adherent of one's teaching. It literally means follower. It figuratively refers to someone who listens to the teaching of another. And the reason why the word follower is used, I think it's a good one, is because the way that rabbis taught in that day was formal and informal. They did some stuff, like in a classroom, if you will, and they did some stuff on the fly. 
And so, like when Jesus would invite his disciples to come and follow him, what they literally meant by that is, wherever I go, you go. You follow me. We walk. We talk. We do life together. Frankly, it's a way better model of teaching. You know what it's like to have the teacher that's restricted to the classroom, and you know what it's like to be impacted by a parent who teaches you in both formal and informal ways. That's the way education took place in the first century. And so the word disciple is just a generic word for a student, a learner, and that'll help you because there are multiple people who will claim to want to learn from Jesus. But that does not necessarily mean that those who want to learn from him will indeed inherit eternal life. That's where we have to be careful in examining our own lives and trying to assess the spiritual health of those around us. These are his disciples insofar as they're interested in learning from him. But, but there's, they have a problem with him fundamentally. Notice they say that what he teaches is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? That interpretation is a little weak because it kind of makes you think like, hey, this is, yeah, this is pretty hard to understand. Like, this, is, this is hard to grasp. But the word hard or difficult as it is used here just as it is in Greek, so it is in English, can either be referring to one's um, comprehension or appreciation. Uh, I can say that um, Einstein's theory of relativity is hard to hear. I don't have any moral objection to the theory of relativity. Not that I know of, because I don't even understand it, frankly. But I don't get it, and that's the point. It's hard. It's hard. I get E equals MC squared. That's all I got. It's intellectually hard. But then there are other things that we hear that are hard for us to accept. Have you ever had somebody critique you for something that you knew to be true? That's hard to hear. I think of every year, I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican, every four years, excuse me, it is hard for you to hear when the other person wins. It's not intellectually something that you can't grasp, it is something volitionally that you just don't want to embrace. What are the disciples, his, Jesus' disciples here, what are they doing? Is, is it because they don't get what he's saying or is it because they don't want to get what he's saying? The context will make that clear. The context makes it clear. This is important. Because what we're talking about is an attribute of someone who looks like they're in the lane, looks like they're headed to eternal life, but ultimately will not. Here's the deal. It isn't intellectual. It's volitional. Notice what he says. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus knows what's going on, verse 61. And this is what it says. Knowing in himself that his disciples, that same group of people, were grumbling about this. Notice that. What are they doing? They're not struggling to understand. They're grumbling. They don't like it. You know, they ask the question, who can listen to it? Who can appreciate this? Who can apply this? But it's kind of like the kids asking, are we there yet? They know jolly well that you're not there yet. (laughs) They're telling you they don't like the position that they're in. In a similar way, they're saying, who can listen to this? Who can hear this? They're grumbling. And so this is what Jesus says to them. Do you take offense at this? Not are you guys intellectually challenged? (laughs) He says, do you take offense? 
I don't like to refer to Greek words too often, but this one I cannot pass up. Listen to it. Skandalidze. Skandalidze. Sound familiar? Scandalize. Are you scandalized by this? You know what a scandal is. It's when you hear something and it offends you morally. Like you hate to hear that it happened. They hate to hear what's happened here. They, they do not like what Jesus is teaching. This is not a matter of the intellect. This is a matter of the heart in particular. And, and what is it that these defective disciples don't like? Well, it's, it's really simple. It's everything that was already said, but here's the big deal. I can just summarize it this way. Defective disciples, let's generalize this, they want Instant temporal gratification over eternal satisfaction. How do you know if someone is a defective disciple? Here it is. They like to hang out with Jesus. They say that they will listen to his teaching, but you know what they ultimately want from him? Something that will make them feel good right now. They are looking for an immediate dopamine response from Jesus. So that means if Jesus can make them healthier, wealthier, wiser, successful, if Jesus could get them the sexual gratification that they're looking for in fulfillment, like that's a sign that it may be a defective discipleship because they don't want the eternal bread that he's providing. They're looking for the temporal bread in the moment right now. That's not the only thing, though, that they're offended by. The second thing that they struggle with is an authoritative Messiah, someone who is from God. Most people just will not accept the fact that Jesus is indeed from heaven. He is the Son of God. I don't know anyone that seriously challenges, by the way, the existence of Jesus. You would have to have your head in the historical sand to say that Jesus did not exist. There's just too, many, too much documentation otherwise. But most people will accept that Jesus was a historical figure, but he was just a misunderstood one. He, he wasn't uh, by any means the son of God. He was just uh, a well-meaning Messiah, uh, one who, as one liberal scholar said, threw himself on the wheel of history but was crushed by it. He did his best. He, he gave us a good example of love because he was willing to die for that which he believed, but he wasn't really of God. Here, Jesus makes it clear, and this is the thing that offended them so, that he is from heaven. He is from the divine realm. He is not just a supernaturally empowered individual. This matters, friends, because there will be people who seem to be riding in the lane. They seem to be wanting to identify with Jesus. They may even have like beautiful choirs that sing at Christmas time. <laughs> They may have a great historical religious pedigree. They may be very devoted and active on Saturdays, knocking on doors, trying to show people the way to Jehovah's eternal life. And yet they will deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It offends them. It's sickening to them. Like, yeah, I can't believe that. That's a defective disciple. That is not the lane that gets you to eternal life. And then the third is they're offended by the fact that he would die on their behalf. That's what that flesh and blood business was about. 
in the earlier verses. It says that I will give my flesh for the world. On behalf of the world, I will sacrifice. The Jews especially didn't mind a Jesus who would come rule reign. They wanted somebody like David who would kick the butt of the nations, take names, come and establish a political kingdom, but they could not handle the fact that he would die. That just seems so disgraceful, so dishonorable. They just didn't think that their sin was that bad. They thought that the blood of bulls and goats was good enough for that, but by no means would any human ever really have to die for their sin. And so some, even still today, say, I like Jesus, I just don't like that death part. I don't like that he would actually, like, I don't think that my sin's that bad. I remember one time I was in uh, Prattville, Alabama. Anybody ever been there? Oh, one person, all right. It's a, uh, it's a suburb of Montgomery. I'm 17, and I have signed up to be a youth pastor <laughs> Uh, at a church, bad move. Don't ever hire a 17-year-old youth pastor. But I was just trying to get pastoral experience. And they said, hey, come on down, you know, serve in our church, and this is what you're going to do. You're going to do stuff with the non-existent group of teenagers on Sunday night, and then you're going to uh, knock on doors during the day and evangelize. I was like, all right, I know how to do that. So, I mean, I'm I'm like, this is fundamentalist church. I'm like wearing a, a tie, and a shirt in 98 degrees and 90% humidity, going door to door like an old school encyclopedia salesman. So I would knock on the door, I would ask somebody, you know, if they, you know, how they're doing today, and I would say I'm doing a survey, and then I would do my little bait and switch, and I'd get around to like asking about uh, the gospel. And I remember this one guy, I was so shocked that, um, like I could just, I was trying to like speed up my presentations because I wanted to cover more doors to be able to put it on my report. Bad, again, another bad move. I'm not commending this. I'm just saying that's where I was in those days. And anyway, this guy actually like was willing to talk to me. I was like, oh, this is really good. And so what I did was I tried to get straight to the prayer part. I was like, hey, you know, Jesus came and, uh, and you know, he died, but he rose again so that he go to heaven and whoever believes in him should be saved. And I remember, I was like, and if you just pray this prayer after me, you can receive Jesus. And so he's like, sure, I'll pray. And so I start doing my little prayer thing. And in the prayer, I'm like, I realized, you know, I didn't really mention the fact that, um, that you know, there was an eternal penalty for sin that needed to be satisfied. So I was, I thought this was a really brilliant move. I'm going to work it into the prayer. So, you know, I, I start saying this prayer and he repeats it after me and I and at that point I like I interject uh, and Lord Jesus uh, I'm so glad that you died for my sins so that I won't have to go to hell and he's up to this point repeated everything that I've said and now he's quiet and so like I've got my eyes closed and I like can't do the peak <laughs> and he's just looking at me and I repeated again. I closed my eyes and repeated, Lord, um, I die for my sins so that I won't have to go to hell. And he's not budging. And he's like, I said, hey, are you okay? He's like, look, I don't mind, you know, accepting Jesus so that I can go to heaven. But I haven't done anything that deserves eternal death and hell. That's defective discipleship. Until one is willing to embrace the fact 
that their sin is so heinous to God that it deserves the execution of the Son, there is no salvation. However well-meaning the individual may be. That's exactly where the Jews were. That offended them. It was disgusting to them. And so Jesus ups the ante. <laughs> you think he'd back down. You think he'd you know, want to accommodate. He doesn't. He, he, he says in verse 62, like he, he adds insult to injury. Notice it. He says, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's a confusing phrase, admittedly. Let me just give you the short version to how to interpret this. What he's saying is, if you seem offended by all this stuff that I've said, which culminated in the Messiah dying for you, how much more offended are you going to be when that crucified Messiah, that one who is disgraced by the Romans, that one who is defiled beyond all means, goes back up into heaven of all places? I mean, that's pretty hard to believe, too. If you were offended by the fact that he would die for you, wait till the one that dies actually ascends into heaven and defiles heaven. I mean, you got to think Jewish mindset. Like, these people couldn't even go into the holy place of the temple. I mean, if they get the wrong kind of illness, they can't even offer a sacrifice. They can't even get close to the physical presence of God. And yet, in this case, the one who is going to die a bloody death is somehow going to enter into heaven. This just seems blasphemous to them. And so, having offended them thoroughly, Jesus now gives an explanation of why or how that the only way that they'll truly be able to believe and receive. Look at verse 63. He says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. He's explaining for all who will hear the reason why some people will not believe these things, the reason why they won't embrace the need for the vicarious death of the Lord Jesus, the reason why they reject His eternal authority as the Son of God, the reason why they want their temporal needs met only and not their eternal ones is because the Spirit must bring life, the flesh, the, the, the human thought, the, like what it means to be human, like that can't ever get the job done. The Spirit must enable this. And he goes on to say, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. It's kind of a simple proposition. All right, so the goal here, hang with me for a second, is eternal life. They want eternal life. Well, how do you get eternal life? You got to believe in Jesus, right? So you want eternal life, you got to believe in Jesus. Well, how are you ever going to believe in Jesus? Ready for this? The Holy Spirit has to be at work for you to believe in Jesus, okay? How do you get the Holy Spirit? How does He normally work and operate? Through the words of Christ. The words of Christ are the means by which the Spirit works in our heart, and that enables our belief in Jesus, which enables us to enjoy eternal life. Do you get the, the chain of events here? And friends, I just think, I, I'm going to like pause for a second. Theological time out. Are you ready? We need to accept as a church family that indeed the Holy Spirit is real and He operates in hearts and lives and apart from His ministry, nothing of eternal value will happen in this place. Amen? All right, now, for a bunch of Baptists, cessationist types like us, I want to tell you something. 
The Spirit is indeed at work. And you know the main way that he does his work? It is through the Word of God. Don't let anybody shame you out of that. The ordinary way that the Spirit works is through the Word of God. And that's what we rely upon. I love the way that the smart, godly dudes who put together the Second London Baptist Confession worded it. I'm going to read you their uh, lawyerese version, and then I'm going to give you the Justin Harris version. But I think that they're, they're both uh, worth our time uh, and energy. Here it is. The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. Who can understand that? Like, you have to sit there and diagram that. I I guess a few of you hung on. Let me give you the simple version. And the reason why I'm reading this to you is because, again, people older, wiser, smarter have held on to the way that this has been formulated for hundreds of years, and it's made sense to a lot of Christians. So I think it'll make sense to you. It illustrates a truth that we see here in this text. This is a principle. There's a truth. And here's the simple way to say it. The gift of saving faith is the work of the Spirit of Christ in the hearts of the elect. The gift of saving faith is the work of the Spirit of Christ in the hearts of the elect. And this gift of faith is ordinarily brought about and strengthened by the ministry of the Word. Ordinarily. The Spirit does His extraordinary work through the ordinary means of the Word of God preached, the Word of God portrayed, in signs, ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper, and through the ministry of prayer. Friends, I want you to understand something. I'll be very kind, especially to those of you who would really like to see the Spirit work in some way other than His Word. I, I, don't, I don't fault that. I get it. I, I want God to do whatever. We'll give Him glory whenever. Uh, but I want you to know that when we insist that the ordinary way that the Spirit brings about life in the heart of an individual is through the Word of God, we are not saying that the Holy Spirit cannot do whatever He wants. You get that, right? I mean, you remember Numbers 22? God spoke through a donkey. And yet, we're not putting a stable out back. And we're not shipping donkeys to unreached people groups. I'm glad you think it's funny, but there are people who proverbially want the donkey to start doing the talking, and they're like kind of bored with the Word, and yet this is the ordinary way that the Spirit works. Eternal life comes from believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus comes from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works through the hearing of the words of Christ. Hearing the words of Christ is only possible for those whom God has granted it. Now listen to this. We're at the next spot in Jesus' statement where it says in verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Notice what Jesus ultimately gets back to. He gets back to belief. 
Hey, if you don't get all the inner workings of how the Spirit works and that kind of thing, here's the deal. The main reason why these people defected, the main reason why they didn't take the exit to eternal life is because they did not believe. I did this a few weeks ago. I'm going to do it again. A visual for you. Jesus describes things from the ground level, from below, and he describes them from above. I'm on the ground level right now, and I'm just explaining that there is a very real sense in which some people will not believe in Jesus because they just don't want to. They don't want to. They just don't want to believe it. You know what it reminds me of? Sam I Am trying to convince that dude, I don't know what his name was, to eat the green eggs and ham. He will not do it here or there or anywhere, not in a box, not with a fox. It's just not going to do it. There are some people who are, are dead set determined, I will not believe this. And that's part of why they're defective disciples. They don't want to. Now, that, that's the human level, and that's very real. I want you to know that we, we don't ponder the questions of eternal election and all that kind of thing in this very moment. One of the, our very first considerations is we want them to believe, just believe, just trust in Jesus from a human level. But at the same time, there's a divine level, there's a view from above, because notice how Jesus explains this in verse 65. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. On the human level, it's because they don't believe. On the divine level, Jesus said, look, no one's coming to me unless the Father grants it to him, gives it to him. Like, that's what the word means, granted, gifted. Unless God enables him to come to me, unless God enables him to believe. This isn't something that we just like work up in and of ourselves. It is something that must be given to us. I say this really, really kindly because I know what it's like for this to be a challenging statement, but you got to get something. Here's a fact regarding all true saving faith. It ultimately comes from God. How else do spiritually dead rebels who hate Jesus and can't see his glory, who can only sin in response to the saving grace of God, ever have the capacity to do something that God would appreciate and value unless he himself enables that response? Faith, even your faith, is a gift from God. I read one Christian evangelical author with the last name of Lakato who said, Jesus took 999 steps and it's up to you to take the last one. Now, I'm not picking on that mindset, but I really don't like the idea that Jesus tried, but he failed because we mess up the last part. He got us to the 99-yard line, and we just couldn't get it to the finish line. We couldn't make it across. I want you to know that God enables faith in all. And you say, ah, I I don't know, I don't know. I I think this is just something that we ourselves do. It is not something that is given from God. Friends, you're going to have to deal with the text, not just this text. But I have two in particular for you to review, and I'm not going to beat this up, but I just want to present it to you. Ephesians 2, 9 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Everybody knows that. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What's not your own doing? What's the gift of God? The grace and the faith, the whole package, everything that he just said. It's from God. 
Here, uh, Philippians 1.29 is even more clear. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. You know what he's saying? God gives you the gift of suffering. But He gives it to you in the same way that He gives you the gift of faith. These are both gifts from His good hand. And so whether we're looking at it from below or from above, we understand that Jesus knows what's going on in the hearts of these defective disciples. Look at verse 66. It says, After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. Though they were passionate about Him, though they were interested in Him, though they were willing to give up their jobs to listen to His teaching, uh, though they recognized that He is in some sense divinely empowered, they refused to accept that He is from above. They refused to accept His sacrificial death on their behalf. And why? Because they don't believe. They don't want to. Why? Because God did not grant them. Though this passage serves as an indictment to those who will not believe, it also provides insights for those of us who already do. Friends, I just want you to be aware of something. If you are part of Jesus' church today, you need to be aware of the fact that mere identification with Jesus does not equal eternal life. It's possible to be so close and yet so far away. I warn you, I'm I'm not trying to scare anyone, I'm just warning you. If you're denying any of those three things that we were talking about earlier, you're getting off on the wrong exit. That is a defective discipleship. Just because you're identifying with Jesus does not mean you enjoy eternal life. True eternal life comes from a saving faith in Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. We partake of that. We own that. And we realize in hindsight that that's only possible because God sent the Spirit to make this possible. We need to be aware. And so I think practically what this means is that when you have people in your life that speak good Christianese, you need to investigate that further and not just assume that they're in Jesus. You need to make sure that they truly have partaken of Him by faith. One evangelical pastor said it this way, I agree. He says, false disciples do not follow Christ because of who He is, but because of what they want from Him. They have no problem viewing Him as a baby in the manger at Christmas, a social reformer with a broad message of love and tolerance the ideal human everyone should emulate, or a source of health and wealth and worldly happiness. But they are unwilling to embrace the biblical Jesus, the God-man who fearlessly rebukes sinners and warned them of eternal hell, and that salvation from that hell comes only through believing His words. So awareness. There's an application point for you. May I give you another, please, before we move on? And this pertains to our evangelism. Not only should we be aware that not everybody who claims to identify with Jesus actually is going to enjoy eternal life, but we also need to, in our evangelism, lean in on the means that God Himself has given us for the conversion of the lost. I get it. It is so frustrating when you're sharing the gospel with those that you love on a regular basis and they just keep rejecting and keep rejecting and keep rejecting, and you're just like, we got to do something. The word's not working. (laughs) 
The prayer stuff's not working. We need to get creative. That's what churches do. When you think, I mean, why do you think people do some of the crazy stuff they do in the name of mission? It's because they think that the word wasn't working, and so they want to help it out. I mean, there's two things. That one is pragmatism, and I'm making up a word here, extravagantism. <laughs> pragmatism is, okay, well, I know this Bible thing's not working, so I know this works for the Fortune 100 company. Therefore, we're going to take these business principles. We're going to take the church. We're going to make the pastor the CEO. We're going to make the, the people, the, the market, the target audience. You know, the, we're going to figure out you know, ways that, that, that we can get this thing to grow. We're going to have slick brochures. We're going to do mail-outs. We're going to do mass marketing. And we're going to get, make sure we're taking advantage of all our social media profiles. Like you, you get that mindset of church growth? You might as well just bring in the donkey. That is not the way that God normally works. Jesus is actually modeling here for us how we respond to people who reject. And that is, does, does he shy away? Does he back off? Does he modify? No, he just keeps saying, well, if you're not going to believe my words, you're not going to believe them. We, we don't accommodate so we could somehow be more effective. Defective discipleship is a definite, friends. Don't be surprised by it. Jesus warns us over and over again that there will be people who look like they're going to follow me but then end up not. Remember the parable of the soils? Of the four different kinds of soils that he mentions, how many of them bear fruit? One. He says, hey, expect it. Some people will come and they'll try to follow me and then the, world, the, the worldly cares of this life will choke it out. Some people, uh, that it's going to seem like the word is springing up very quickly, but it's shallow because the first time the heat gets turned on, they're going to wither away. And some of it falls on the hard stony path, but only one bears fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. It's a fact. We don't accommodate. The message is not messed up. This is the means by which God has chosen to get his work done. Let's move on. That's the defective disciples. The next group, we'll see this more quickly. It's the devoted. You largely see the devoted in verses 67 to 70a. There's going to be that note on Judas. Don't worry, I'm going to explain it. But the focus here is on those who are actually devoted to Jesus. Listen to it. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I love this because here you've got a bunch of guys. This is really cool. If you've got any budding sociologists in the room, you know, there's just a debate about like, how does change really happen? Is it nature, nurture, or choice? Most people lean in on nature. They're like, it's just all how you're brought up. It's all, you know, it's all about your background. You understand that the 12 were of the same background as the masses. They grew up in the same villages. They grew up in the same towns. They received the same education. So here's a fascinating study. What makes them different? Why are these technically 11 guys different than everybody else? Well, you get insight into their response. Jesus said, do you want to go away as well? And now notice what they say in response. Peter, naturally the spokesperson, it's like they've talked about it before. They said, where else shall we go? We thought about it. 
Uh, but where, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And, and here's what's fascinating. I, another little grammar insight. The way that he responds is interesting because he emphasizes, um, to use my analogy again, Peter's response will emphasize the from below. Uh, this, is, this is what he says. Uh, I'm going to do like a, I'm going to slaughter the translation and be overly literal. And we ourselves have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's hard for you to hear it, but in what I just said, the reason why it's different is in the English translation, it only says we one time. In the original language, that first person, personal pronoun, we, is there three times. We, we, we have believed and known you. And Peter's right to emphasize the human response. After all, what's the difference between those who go off on the exit to eternal perdition and those who enjoy eternal life? It's none other than belief in Jesus. And true, true, true point. From below, Peter is right. The difference between the 11 and the masses is faith. Uh, This makes total sense in light of everything that Jesus has taught. They believe it, they know it. But notice how Jesus responds. Now you're going to get the view, once again, from above. So Peter says, we, we, we have believed and known. What does Jesus say? I'm going to be overly literal again, if you'll let me do it. Did not I, I myself, not choose you? (laughs) Whereas Peter emphasized the first person pronoun, Jesus emphasizes his own first-person pronoun. Hey, you said that uh, you guys remain because you believed in me, but here's the deal. I, myself, chose you. That's the view from above. I chose you, the twelve. You would have never believed had I not chosen you first. You you know, this is just uh, like a fact, friends. Like, this is... This is the way that life works. You know, like, here's the American mindset. Peter would would make a great American because we're individualists. Like, William Ernst Hensley would be so proud of Peter's statement. You know his poem, Invictus? I'll just quote the last line. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. (laughs) I'm the captain of my soul. I'm in charge. I'm calling the shots here. And Jesus says, no, I, I chose you. That's why you believe. I chose you. I picked you. And what's interesting is, Jesus comments better accord with the old words from hymns that we do not sing in this day because it challenges us too much. Josiah Condor, 1836, a hymn that would have been normally sang in churches just like this almost 200 years ago. Listen to these lyrics. My Lord, I did not choose you, for that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. 
Unless your grace had called me and taught my opening mind, the world would have enthralled me to heavenly glories blind. Friends, we did indeed choose him. We believed in him, but it was because he first chose us. This is powerful, and this is beautiful, and this is amazing, and this is true. But I realize, friends, that this is scary. For some of you to hear this, even again, I'm not, I, I have no trumpet to sound other than this book. I want you to know that. It just happens to be where we are today, and I get it. Some of you are like, I don't like this. I don't like this emphasis. I think it's just better if we just emphasize that, that man is, is, is totally free and he makes his own decisions and therefore it's their fault if they, they go to hell. It's not, God has nothing to do with it. I get it. And I, I want you to know I'm very sympathetic. And I, what I imagine this being like, I, I heard someone put it this way. I thought it was really good. It's kind of like, um, if you like country music, you're just a good old Southerner. Like sweet tea, going to grandma's house on Sunday. That's me. Just not the country music as much. But let's imagine that the only thing that you've heard is just good old country music. I'm talking like from the 80s and 90s, not this new trash. And you've never heard anything but that. And then all of a sudden one day you're uh, touring D.C. and you go into the National Cathedral with its massive pipe organ. And for the first time in your life, you hear Bach's Toccata and Fugue. I bet the first time you hear that, it's disturbing. I mean, it's like shaking you to your very core. It's it's heavy, it's hard, it's, it's loud. You may not even get it at first, like, what is going on here? I'm used to Conway Twitty. <laughs> but after a while, you begin to get the beauty of that power. You embrace it. <laughs> this isn't just as good, this is superior. Another example. Let's say that you grew up in somewhere like the Shire. (laughs) Peaceful green meadow, lots of little people floating around, watering their gardens, playing with one butterflies, blue skies. And all of a sudden, one day, you wake up halfway up a mountain in the Himalayas. You've never seen anything like this. It scares the living daylights out of you. I mean, you can't even take in the beauty of the view before you because you are so afraid that you're going to die. It's cold. It is windy. But once acclimated, there's something there that was never offered in the Shire. You might even get to the point 
where you want to get a little closer to the edge of the cliff and peer over just to see how high up you really are. It's beautiful. It's good. Friends, this text makes no bones about it. The difference, the difference between the defective and the devoted is none other than the sovereign working of God from above and the belief or unbelief of the individual from below. And so I would say that in light of of this, it brings us to some, some very practical considerations. The first one is appreciation. Friends, you need to get something. How kind of God, how so kind of God, not only to send His Son from heaven, to sacrifice His life and rise again so that we may enjoy life eternally, but also to choose us in His grace to benefit from that sacrifice. <laughs> to take our sorry dead souls, and not only get them to the 99-yard line and drop them off there, but to push us into the end zone and give us life. That is God's grace. Ephesians 2, read it from start to finish. It says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You You were under the power of the prince of the power of the air. Like you had no other alternatives, but he gave you life. If you're believing here today, I want you to know something supernatural has happened. It isn't because you're smarter or wiser or luckier than anyone else. It's because God in His grace reached down and touched you and enabled you to believe in His dear Son. And that means something, friends, because for those of you who struggle with doubt, you didn't get yourself in and you don't keep yourself in. He's holding on to you. He enabled it, and he will consummate it. I think it was Spurgeon who said that the sovereignty of God is the sweet pillow that he rests his head on at night. How do you sleep otherwise if you don't know that he is the one at work? Appreciation. Second, evangelism. Friends, I'm not going to guilt you into evangelism. I want to tell you something that's really cool. Let's simplify the evangelistic process. Instead of you pretending that you're trying to sell a life insurance policy, or excuse me, an eternal life insurance policy, why don't you just treat it the way that the one old country preacher said, evangelism is nothing more than one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. You're satisfied eternally in Jesus you let other people out there, they can be no, satisfied eternally in Jesus. It's a really simple thing. Do you have to be able to explain all the intricacies of election? No, you say this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Offer the bread of life who is Jesus. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't get to this stuff about what's going on in eternity past until people begin to reject him. But his offer is always clear, and it is compelling. And I say, friends, just keep offering bread to all. It's not that complicated. Appreciation, evangelism, and here's the last one, an invitation. An invitation. And don't worry, for those of you who grew up in certain churches, there's nobody coming to this piano playing a soft ditty so that you will come down to the altar. What I mean by an invitation here is that this conclusion to the bread of life discourse reminds us once more that we are invited 
to partake of Jesus by faith. And all, here's, this is all it takes, friends. Just try Him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It is kind of funny I mentioned green eggs and ham. Because the guy rejects the green eggs and ham all the way through, under all the circumstances. I don't want to spoil the book for any of the children here. (laughs) But you know how it ends? Sam, (laughs) I know, I'm having a hard time too. You do not like them, so you say? Try them, try them, and you may. Try them, and you may, I say. To this, his friend replies, Sam, if you will let me be, I will try them, you will see. And he tries them. Say, I like green eggs and ham. I do. I like them, Sam, I am. And he likes them in every circumstance because he gave them a try. And I want you to know something. Here's the invitation today for those of you who have yet to place your faith in Jesus. Try him, please. Why not? What do you have to lose? The moral of that simple Dr. Seuss story is almost biblical insofar as you cannot know whether or not you like it if you don't try it. This is why Jesus so persistently offers. Listen to his words. I'm just reading from John 6. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread of life that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Do you hear it? Whoever will, whoever will, whoever will. Eight different times in this passage, he said, come and try it. But you object. I can't believe. You just told me. I can't believe unless I was chosen by God. It's out of my control. How do I know if I'm elect? Well, along these lines, our favorite dead Baptist preacher, Chuck Spurgeon, offers this fantastic advice, and with this I close. You can only discover if you are elect by looking unto Jesus. Here's his instructions. If you want to know, here it is. Assuming you feel yourself to be a guilty sinner, go straightway to the cross of Christ and tell Jesus so, And tell him that you have read the Bible, him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. Tell him that he has said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Look to Jesus and believe on him and you shall make proof of your election directly. For so surely as you believe, you are elect. If you will give yourself wholly up to Christ and trust him, then you are one of God's chosen ones. But if you stop and say, I want to know first whether I am elect, you ask, you know not what. 
Go to Jesus. Be you never so guilty, just as you are. Leave all curious inquiry about election alone. Go straight to Christ and hide in his wounds, and you shall know your election. The assurance of the Holy Spirit shall be given to you so that you shall be able to say, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him. Christ was at the everlasting council. He can tell you whether you were chosen or not, but you cannot find it out in any other way. Go and put your trust in him, and his answer will be, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. There will be no doubt about his having chosen you when you have chosen him. Choose him. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, there are some doubtless here today who came in spiritually dead and in the wrong lane because they have yet to depend upon Jesus as their sacrifice for sin, as the God-man who reconciles them with the Father. Give them the gift of faith today. May they believe, may they be saved. And for those who are here who have already believed, assure them, encourage them, or strengthen their faith, or though they falter and fall and fail in so many ways, remind them that you hold to them, that your spirit is at work in them. And finally, Lord, give us the confidence. Give us the confidence as a church body to hold on to the means of grace given to us, the ordinary means that the Holy Spirit works through for the saving of sinners. And may we hold on to the power of your word in our gathering and in our mission. And may Christ be honored. May souls be saved. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.